Hello and welcome to episode 67 of If This Is A Podcast Then What's Christmas? The eagle-eared amongst... Do, do eagles hear very well? I don't know. Um, bat. Bat-eared amongst you will have noticed that there's no intro music in this episode. There's no outro music either. It's a little technical snafu that's far too boring to go into, but I just thought I will explain uh, that in case any of you are going, Jesus Christ, I've listened to 66 episodes of this and there's always been that kid playing the guitar. Anyway, that aside, the more important thing here is that um, my conversation is with Tim Lindsay, who is the chairman of DNAD. And um, we could have had a conversation about that. There's always a lot of little whining points. I'm saying they're whining points because I, I whine about them sometimes myself, about you know international jurors understanding copy or whether the annual should be printed or not printed or... Um, whatever it happens to be. We didn't talk about any of that. Sorry. Maybe maybe that's for another conversation. So there was that. And then Tim has had his own stellar career in advertising. Um, you know, he, he was at BBH from the very beginning through all the incredible ads they made in the 80s and uh, 90s, particularly Levi's, an account that he ran. So there's that. And then, then he did the same kind of thing at Lowe. We didn't talk about that either. So uh, what did we talk about? Well, the reason this came about is because I discovered on LinkedIn there was a video footage of a debate that seemed to have been uh, chaired by Patrick Hollister between Tim and Laura Jordan Barnback, who's been a, a president of DND, and uh, Steve Harrison about whether advertising kind of ought to have purpose or whether it should sell. I'm not sure that was the point of the, the, the chat. I think it was supposed to be setting up the students for you know, what they might face uh, when, when they're out in the big wide world. But there was a lot of conversation about it because Steve's just written a book about the fact that really it's all about selling. Advertising's all about selling and they shouldn't talk about purpose and no one cares about purpose. And Tim was kind of defending uh, the fact that advertising kind of has a bigger responsibility uh, out there in, in the world and not just uh, are people buying more stuff. And, you know, if people do buy more stuff... How is that affecting the climate crisis and all that kind of thing? Uh, so, you know, in this in the context of a, a world of pandemics, um, you know, there's due to be another one along in a few years and geopolitical upheaval and the climate crisis. I found myself in massive agreement with everything Tim was saying. So we uh, we just we we got together and said let's have a chat about it. And it it may feel like you know. We're in our own bubble, the, the pair of us patting each other on the back for having similar views to each other or something like that. It wasn't a heated debate where I, I was trying to find someone to oppose what I think. I think it was more about looking at advertising from the sort of 30,000 feet point rather than, oh, are the Christmas ads going to be this good this year? You know, everyone's in a, a really crap mood. This is about advertising in, in the, the wider sense of where it is, particularly in 2020. So... Um, Bearing all that in mind, I really hope you enjoy our chat. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Tim Lindsay. Well, so when I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, I was going, wow, I could probably do like an hour on you and your career, which would be a, a different thing. But, but because the thing that I got in touch about was that that uh, YouTube clip that- Oh um, yeah, I'm impressed you found it then, yeah. Well, uh, 
God, where was it? I mean, I think it must have been on someone's LinkedIn yeah, conversation sorry. or something like that. And yeah. was, uh, so I had a look there. Yeah. But um, like I said, everything you said, and, and maybe we, we could sort of go into the chat now, really, but everything you said seemed to be so simpatico with what I was thinking about the way advertising needs to be uh, kind of a different perspective on advertising in 2020 yeah. and how it was actually a really amazing microcosm of your perspective on that even as someone who's been through the 80s and 90s and seen you know the, those years yeah. and Steve Harrison's which is slightly different but I, I felt like there's a lot of Steve Harrison perspective out there I think there's a lot of people out there who are just like we should be selling stuff that's what we do the yeah. whole purpose thing is not only a distraction but something that is damaging to um advertising in a, at a time when it's sort of if not on its knees and in, in a in a somewhat more submissive position than it's ever been it's definitely been in better shape that's for sure yeah so as as ceo dnad i was um i was interested in how you'd sort of is there is there a path you think that you you went down that took you to those things or has it been an incremental reading guardian articles and conversations with people and things like that that's kind of um, that conclusion it's, I actually wrote a column for The Guardian for a while when a guy called Joe Confino uh, edited their sort of sustainable business online section. And he got, I, I, I wrote a column, I wrote 10 articles for them on, on in the sort of early days of DNAD white pencil and impact ar around that. And I think it was, it was mainly sort of trying to sort my own head out actually. Uh, um, well, it was useful for that. Um, yeah, there, there is a lot of of that. Do you know Steve Harrison, Ben? I do. Yeah, he, he I, like I said um, on the email, uh, I I asked him in for and uh, to talk in my agency about oh, ten yeah. years ago when the when his book on Howard Gossage came out. Yeah, so yeah. I know I know him like I knew him much more then than sort of tangentially. Yeah, since. I loved that Gossage book actually. I thought mm. it was brilliant, and I, was I reviewed it for campaign and. And actually help Steve sort of, you know, publicize it around the launch and so on. In fact, I think we, we did something, something DNA did, did something to help help him. And then then sort of confidentially, we 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 sort of fell out over a couple of things, not not badly. And I, I think the book that he's just written is just a sort of, I don't know why he's done it. It's just a sort of it's it's to provoke a reaction, I think, from what he probably would see as the sort of abundance of snowflakes in our business. <laughs> but, uh, and I, as I tried to point out in that discussion, you know, it just isn't binary like that. You know, it's not either we do this or we do that. It's, it's so much more complicated. And uh, I don't think there's anyone sensible who would say, you know, of course we have to help our clients sell stuff. That is, that, that is a huge part of the job, but we have to give them the right advice. And in doing that, we all have to sort of, you know, conserve resources for, you know, so that the planet and, you know, future generations can continue to live on it. And I, I just think that's sort of a no brainer, pretty much. I mean, unless you're Donald Trump or, you know, someone like that. And I'm well, sure you're yeah, gone, sorry, yeah. Well, I was gonna say, I, I have a feeling like you've given it a lot of consideration and as have I in trying to start an ethical advertising agency and be, I've, I've like dived, deep into it but I think it took me a while to really get the the nuance of the argument and what you've just laid out seems seems self-evident to me as well yeah. but I think there are a lot of people who when you explain um you know what the I, I remember actually sitting in my agency in, in LA um uh, a few years ago saying but you know capitalism is ultimately going to be hugely problematic for 
the people living on the planet in, in terms of how it how it is at the moment because yeah. the end game of capitalism is to continually use more and more resources on this planet until what happens we don't have any more and we'll end yeah. it so the guy was talking to was like what do you mean uh well, hang on anti-capitalism that's really that's a completely weird idea and then oddly enough a year later he was a massive bernie sanders flag waver and had come around to the whole thing <laughs> but we we um make the wheels of capitalism and advertising turn a bit faster so for us to in any way go against that seems to be going against what we are and what we do so how how do we reconcile those two things well i i think you sort of have to you have to sort of examine your own you know what, what you do in, in your own professional life and indeed in your own personal life as well that's a sort of slightly different subject and and just to take steve again as an example you know i think that the agency that he founded back in the day was a pretty you know ethical place you know i mean what passed for ethical behavior back then was you know not working for cigarette clients not working for clients who treated you like shit and that was, Steve's agency was like that. And he describes it in the book. And actually you think, oh, I'd quite like to work there. It sounds a bit like PBH. And, uh, and I think that's all moved on now. And he, he then went on to say, if I, if, if I, Steve, was to start an agency today, it would be a B Corp. And you go, I on Steve. <laughs> that's completely at odds with what, if, so if you'd be a B Corp, why wouldn't you be giving your clients that kind of advice? You know, to put people on the planet, on, you know, give that the same weight and importance as profit. And he sort of didn't seem to get his head around the, around the sort of contradiction that was implied in that. But so I, I, I concluded, I think I said it in the, that he actually didn't believe his own argument. You know, he's just saying it to sort of stir stuff up and get people like Rory Sutherland, you know, on the warpath on his behalf. Uh, but I, I, I think that the, the industry always has to remember what it does and how it gets paid. And, you know, and a large part of that is selling clients product. But, but, but doing it, as I said earlier, Ben, in a way that conserves resources for future generations has got to be a big part, big part of the equation and has to be sort of, you know, bound into all thinking and execution now. And, I, and, and I'm thinking, there are, sorry, I'm rattling on here. I think yeah. many, many companies, big and small, are demonstrating that you can make money out of doing the right thing and the right thing in, in today's terms. So, yeah. I think that's quite hopeful. I think it's hopeful as well. And I, th I think the, I mean, just in watching the last couple of presidential debates and indeed what was mentioned on Biden's acceptance speech the other day, climate change slash the climate crisis got mentioned a lot. Four years ago, it barely got mentioned at all, at all. And everyone was like, why are you not mentioning the climate crisis? And now they were almost kind of one-upping each other to see how green they were, Donald Trump and, and, jo and Joe Biden, admittedly with less... Yeah. intelligence or whatever we could we could you know go into that for a while but um it's now on the agenda and the conversation is getting louder and louder and i feel like you know it's something that can't be ignored anymore yeah. but when you have those conversations um i think people have a certain paralysis in terms of what actions to take and how to take them yeah. you know there's a fantastic book i've read called um, don't even think about it by a guy called george marshall where in about 200 very entertaining pages he outlines the psychological difficulties human beings have in addressing the climate crisis. Yeah. It's actually, there's a name for it, it's called a wicked problem in that it's almost everywhere you turn, it can't be solved because for instance, if we go, shall I go vegan to stop meat consumption? Then you go, what about the food miles of my mango that's come from this country yeah. far away? And you, you just go, I'm, I'm opting out, I'm not gonna bother. Or if I have my own personal um, 
you know, green credentials. What about all those factories spewing coal in China? What's yeah. the point, really? So we'll always find these, these, these kind of ways out. But I think the advertising industry itself has got a, is right in the middle of that because it's sort of um, historically been quite left-leaning and must be aware of these things. And yet, because so much money is now flowing to Google and Facebook in terms of the money that used to go to traditional advertising agencies, yeah. I feel like there's a, a bit of an onus to not do anything that compromises the kind of financial health of things. And it's kind of this balance. Um, I don't know how you if, you, if you've had any conversations along those lines with, with people at agencies or... or... I, I have. I, I discern a real difference actually in, um, in attitudes in, in Europe and, and attitudes in the States. So a couple of anecdotes. I, I was very fortunate to go to the advanced management program at Harvard in the late 90s, low 70. And there was, a, there were about, it was about 60% American and 40% other, of, of whom quite a few were Europeans. And there was a huge difference between the sort of very fiery brand of capitalism that was being taught in American business schools at that time and a much more socially democratic attitude, you know, as evinced by us, by us Euro Europeans. And I remember being shocked at, at the complete disregard for kind of human capital and, and, and so on that was evidenced by what our American co-students were saying. And that, that occurred again, I was chairing a panel discussion at Adweek New York with some, I can't even remember who was on the panel, quite senior, US creatives, and I advanced slightly, you know, not timidly, but, you know, carefully, trepidatiously, the theory that, you know, advertising might at least be complicit in encouraging overconsumption. And they all fucking turned on me <laughs> as, as, as if I sort of undermined the very basis of what, you know, they spent their lives doing, seriously. Uh, and I think there is a difference, and maybe maybe it's changed. That was probably five year, years ago. But were they saying you were wrong, or were they just saying they were saying that that's ridiculous? Advertising is here. They were saying what Steve Harrison is saying essentially. You know, our job is to sell, and you know, any any thought that we should hold back on that or think about some of the obvious implications of that was kind of anathema to them. I, I can't remember who it was actually. It's probably best not to mention them, but but <laughs> but they weren't people you would think would take that view in. Europe, certainly in a European context, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually asked a, a professor, um, Omnicom used to run a, uh, a sort of Omnicom, it was called Omnicom University, and they used to uh, get uh, Harvard uh, professors, it wasn't actually held at Harvard, but it, they used to get Harvard professors to come and teach, you know, senior executives for a week. And I remember there was a very formidable lady called Nancy Kane, a very senior professor, and I remember asking her whether she and her colleagues took responsibility for, you know, the crash, because a lot of those uh, products were developed in the research departments of the big business schools in the States. And of course she said no. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, I, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get people to take all this on board. But I think if you look back, Ben, at people, the sort of prevailing attitudes 10 years ago, they were very different from the way people are thinking now, I think, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's that, there's that quote from Upton Sinclair, it's hard to get a man to believe in something when his salary believes, it depends on him believing the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very much a case where you go, you know, are we going to be, well, like a lot of the Republican senators at the moment, are we going to be turkeys voting for Thanksgiving or Christmas? 
yeah. or are we going to um, just go along with the prevailing thing that will get us paid next month? Yeah. And, I, and that's another argument where you go, you know, I can make these compromises or make these changes, but I still need to pay rent and put food on the table for my family. Yeah. To, to yeah. what extent should I just be selling everything I've got, giving it to climate crisis charities and living in a cardboard box? Exactly. There's, there's, a, there's a gray area in between the two things, I guess. I mean, coming back to Biden and, and, and climate emergency and so on, I mean, he, he's now saying that, you know, his, his policy is primarily focused on the three C's, isn't it? It's, you know, COVID, climate crisis and China is, which is a sort of good soundbite, but that's what yeah. he said. So it's up but there. But that, that's an amazing advance from, from where really things is. used to be. And I think, I think um, the, the Overton window of conversation moved a lot over the, over the year and yeah. over the last couple of years. And, you know, whether it's wildfires that just won't stop in, in the Western United States or the hurricanes or whatever else it happens to be, you kind of can't um, ignore it. But I, I feel there's also people don't understand that the refugee crisis that, that led to Brexit was a result of the climate destroying the arable land in Syria and the Syrian people having to move to the cities and then the people that unrest refugees. I mean, if, if you, I, I used to, I was brought up in Africa and I used to go with Lowe, I used to go to South Africa. As you fly up north from, from Southern Africa over, over the beginnings of the Sahara, there's literally hundreds of miles of land that used to be cultivated but the Sahara has moved south. I mean, the, that, sorry, there's a point to that, which is this, this kind of talk, this kind of dangerous uh, talk is often characterized as being anti-business, but it's the exact opposite of that. But business can't operate without political and climate stability. You know, no one wins if the world's on fire. And, and, and you know, so that has to be taken into account. Which is why smart companies like Unilever are taking into, in, into and Rabobank and PG and you know Patagonia and all the others. You you can't sell stuff to people if a they don't have any money, b they don't have anywhere to live, and, and c they're you know in flight from something, whether that's water scarcity or you know war or whatever. Yeah, it feels like it's one of those human nature situations where it's like, can we wait till the very last minute to do something about this thing that is annoying to do things about? Like we all know that in, as, as our own personal like ways of behaving ourselves, you go, do I have to, do I have to do it? And then you, you wait and then it's, it might be a bit too late and you might have to deal with some consequences. But I feel like there's a, a sort of global version of that going on at the moment where you go, could we still, like we're still, you know, drilling for oil right now. And even yeah. though companies like uh, BP or whatever are putting money towards renewable energy, yeah. they're still, oh, let's open up um, uh, these areas of federal land to be drilled. Let's, you know, make sure that, that there's more fracking going on. Let's, it, it's, it's kind of crazy that even though we all know this is going on, we'll still continue down the other path. Yeah, it's, and that's another example of how nuanced this all is or how difficult it is to get a, a handle on it and how it, is, it really isn't black and white. Because, you know, the fossil fuel companies are, are the people who are investing most in renewables and the automotive manufacturers are the people who are investing most, you know, in, in electrification and, and, you know, battery life and all, all that stuff that is going to, you know, change all that. It really will. I also think that people are making, whereas people, for the reasons you said, you know, you've got a salary and kids at private school and, you know, it, it affects, I know this is serious, but it doesn't affect me yet. I really be believe that people are beginning to make changes in their personal lives as well. Mm. I mean, when I say that, I mean people like us, you know, with cars and houses and kids and all the rest of it. That, again, if you look back 10 years, you know, 
you know, you weren't thinking of buying an electric car or putting solar panels on your roof, or, or at least I wasn't. And, and now, or, you know, eating more vegetarian meals. And, and they're only small things, but if millions of people do it, it will, you know, perhaps make a difference, I guess, I hope. Well, yeah, I was, I was reading an article on the weekend about um, the kind of weird uh, situation of, of ethical consumption. Because, you know, we make all these little changes and whether it's recycling or, you know, composting or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. The point of this article was saying that um, it wasn't to, to get out of doing those things, but it was saying that it's really weird that we have government legislation in both, you know, all over the world that says it's okay for companies to produce plastic yeah. and to, to make all this incredible damage to the world. That there's enough legislation out there that goes, okay, BP, you can continue drilling or fracking or whatever. Yeah. And then it comes down to our personal responsibility to recycle the crap that they make. And rather than it having being further up the food chain, where you know you can go no no more you've got to keep all the oil in the ground now no one's done that instead it's no no, no we're going to bring the oil out of the ground but when we turn it into a plastic piece of crap yeah. it's up to you to recycle it it's a really it weird really i've never thought of it like that you're absolutely right you know you stop these things at source and of course it, i mean it's like i mean a smaller example you know british supermarkets banning you know single-use carrier bags mm. you know it had an immediate effect you know people yeah. start thinking you know, shock horror shopping bags when they went shopping, uh, you know, and uh, it, it, it changed changed things in a matter of months, actually. Um, so there, there are sort of, you know, behavioral science stuff that you can do that, that has real, that's not behavioral science, but you know, the stuff you could do by legislation that has huge impact, I think. Yeah, you're right. But those externalities that we kind of, it's, it's kind of our responsibility then to fix things that giant companies have done. But, you know, it's, there are, there's that ingredient aspartame, aspartame in diet, yeah. which is known, proven to, to give you cancer. And no one instead goes, let's not sell Diet Coke. Like I spoke to a nutritionist who said, oh, you shouldn't be drinking as much Diet Coke as that. You, know, yeah. you shouldn't really be allowed to put cancer chemicals into Diet Coke. Is <laughs> a really weird way of looking at it. We have a but, right to expect our governments to protect us from that sort of stuff. It was discovered by accident, aspartame, apparently. Was it? Yeah, like someone, it was like one of those things, a scientist had left a couple of, you know, chemicals in a dish and tasted it on, went, oh my God, that's sweet. It was a sort of, they weren't trying to discover it. It just, it sort of popped up sometime in the late sixties or early seventies. Yeah. That's sweet. Now I have tongue cancer, but hey, there's a bunch, but, yeah. I, I mean, it's, but there's a serious point in there, the, 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 the business balance of going, hey, we found a really cheap sweetener. Yes, I know yeah. people really get cancer exactly. is a sort of, one example of how business goes well yeah there's going to be some consequences but yeah. we need to be a, a company worth billions and billions of dollars otherwise yeah what's the point? in fact the fda didn't allow it in u.s soft drinks for a long time it was legal in europe before it was legal in the states i'm at, i think that's right i'm pretty sure that's the right way around yeah anyway but, and that's but, the idea in all this but <laughs> i mean yeah so well, I was going to actually ask a very specific DNAD question yes. in terms of all of this, because I wrote a blog post uh, a few months ago uh, that was entitled something along the lines of, this ad is brilliant, that's why I hate it, about the uh, IKEA ad where all your knickknacks rap to you about how crap your house is and the yeah. fact that you need to, which one, at least one pencil, if not two, yeah. I think, yeah, this yeah. year. Yeah. And um, my, my point, which, which seemed to have got a, a fair bit of traction when I stuck the blog up on, on LinkedIn, was that, yeah, it's a really, really well-made ad. It's really charming, really fun, really memorable. But what it's essentially saying is, 
even though you've got this stuff, um, you should be guilted now into re-upping your furniture because, mm -hmm. hey, it doesn't fit with what's up today. Because advertising dictates you know, this constant churn of, hey, there's new fashion in terms of chairs or throws or paintings. Yeah. There should be, so my, my point, I'll way down that path was, um, is it responsible for DNAD to award ads like that when even though they're very well made, they're potentially damaging? And I know it's not an easy answer. <laughs> no, no, it's very, it's a very current conversation because so Naresh Ramchandani has just become president of DNAD, which you probably know, Ben. I'm, I'm, I don't know him personally, but I know, obviously. Okay, so he, he's, I mean, his thing, he's, I mean, he's a brilliant writer and he's a partner at Pentagram and he founded two agencies and, you know, he's a great of our business and a very, very lovely guy. But sustainability has been a big thing with him for a long time. You know, he was on about this stuff before many of us realised how important it was. And, and he's asked the same question, you know, should DNAD award stuff, even if that product or that company is doing something, you know, negative, you know, regarding the planet. And the slightly weaselly answer is DNAD doesn't award anything. Okay. Right. We, we appoint jurors and they, award, they make the awards. And that, that is absolutely true. I'm sure you've judged Ben. Have you? Have you have, judged yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have absolutely no influence on the decisions that the juries make. We, we select the juries, obviously, and we manage, but it's the kind of prevailing view of senior people in the, in the industry. That's what creates awards. Um, I personally, I'm going to use an example here of Tide, uh, which won a black pencil three years ago for that. It's a Tide ad, that Super Bowl yeah. series. And it's not the right example. If, if I mean, you know, washing your clothes with that kind of detergent uses a lot of water, you know, in, and in, a, in a world that is, has water scarcity issues, that might not be a great thing. It's just a detergent ad, albeit a very brilliant one. I would be very sorry if DNAD wasn't able to give awards to, to, to campaigns like that, which don't have a purpose. They don't pretend to be anything. Well, they did pretend to be something else, but you know what I'm saying? It was just selling soap powder. Um, and I... Secondarily to that, I, I sort of trust the jurors to make the right decisions on our behalf. You know, there are a lot of purpose-driven uh, campaigns and products being awarded now, and there's a controversy around that. You know, certainly people like Steve would say, you know, we've lost, you know, we've lost the plot. You know, this stuff doesn't work; it doesn't sell stuff. I don't believe that, by the way. I think you know, something like the Colin Kaepernick uh, Nike campaign sold a lot of pairs of sneakers. Mm. So I think attaching yourself to the right causes, even if it's done slightly cynically, can be hugely effective commercially. But I think it's also important to be sort of, for our industry and us as individuals to be kind of on the right side of history here. You know, I think we have to be seen to be, you know, supporting the right causes and doing the right things. And, and I think in general, the industry is working towards that in quite a healthy way. And in general, from an awards perspective, I think that kind of work is being recognised, even though some of it, undoubtedly, I shouldn't really say this, but I will, some of it is scam, for, for sure. You know, it ticks all the boxes, yeah, yeah. but it was done to win an award. But enough of it isn't for it to be important for us to encourage that kind of work. Does that sort of answer the question? Sort of? It does, and I think that I think what you, you mentioned there in that it being a, a, a very difficult, debatable grey area in terms yeah. of what's good and what's, um, what's good and bad. 
um, is is really interesting because yeah, you could say let's not do any I don't know X or a BP or whatever. But yeah. where do you draw the line? Or or um, ga gambling or you know booze advertising or yeah. because people misuse the sub you know those substances. I mean I I can't conceive of a, a DNAD jury or any other awards jury uh, awarding a cigarette campaign, however brilliant it was these days. They just wouldn't do it. Uh, assuming one, you know, was entered and, you know, eligible and all, all, all the rest of it. I think times do definitely change. You know, it's only 30 years ago that Benson Hedges was, you know, and Silk Cut were winning all the awards going, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. So that's a fascinating kind of angle as well, because we're kind of almost sitting here going, in five years' time or 10 years' time, we're going to look back and go, you know, petrol-driven car advertising or, uh, you know, yeah. companies like that shouldn't have been awarded. And it's weird. I've been listening to a few podcasts recently about how people look back at their stand-up comedy careers and there's always cringy moments. Oh, there's always yeah. a moment where you use the word that is now a totally forbidden, yeah. weird and creepy word. And you go, well, back in 1995, it was perfectly fine to say that or 2005 or whatever oh, it happens to be. Very interesting to say. I, I think it was probably on TikTok, actually, that I saw an old Smith & Jones sketch of, 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 where they're both policemen and... Uh, uh, Mel Smith is, you know, a thick bloke who's, uh, you know, arrested the same bloke 126 times because he's black, you know, and you think you cannot possibly be serious. Even, even 30 years ago, this was sort of weird. And it, to see it now is extremely uncomfortable. Uh, you know, but the point the, he's making is a good point of, of institutional racism in the It was making a good point. I, I, that was indeed the point. But I might the remember the exact sketch you're talking about, and I think it had words that you would never use on TV. It did, which I wouldn't even use, it, even in this conversation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, but that is a kind of fascinating kind of angle on things. And it may be that, it's funny that when I think about the advertising that I like, I sometimes think, oh, I'm a bit regressive. I like, I like the, the, the traditional media that I grew up in when I, when I first got there. And I find myself a little bit annoyed with the, 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 the fraud and the uh, underwhelmingness of a lot of digital advertising. And I go, am I being a bit of a dinosaur? And then on the other side, I sit there and think advertising really needs to rip itself up and if not start again, go on to a whole new paradigm. And, and this thing of maybe in five years or 10 years time, we'll look back and say it's bad. If a juror, if, sorry, if a jury happened to be composed of nine people who were as, I'm going to uh, use the word just to get up Steve Nose a second, woke. As, uh, as, they, <laughs> as they could possibly be and go, well, look, this is an amazing ad that's been awarded all over the world for you yeah. know, BP or Shell or something. We're not going to award it. We're only going to award it. And, and the, their whole debate was about, hang on, this company has been done for human rights abuses. I mean, it, it's funny that you bring up Colin Kaepernick because Nike has obviously had its own um, questionable you know, oh. ethical practices itself. Really? And yeah. one could say that the Colin Kaepernick situation is a form of woke washing. Um, and especially as, uh, as a, it's in no secret, you can find this on the internet, plenty of stuff. Nike weren't going to sponsor Colin Kaepernick. They were gonna pull his sponsorship until Widens told them that would be a really stupid thing to do and you shouldn't do it and then lean yeah. into it. So I didn't know that. you've got this company that's going, Let, let's get rid of this Kaepernick guy. He's gonna be bad for business. The agency goes, really don't do that. It's a really bad thing. It's not very Nike. They, they run an ad that is presumably against the wishes they had a month ago. Yeah. saying Colin Kaepernick's the best thing since sliced bread yeah. and they reap a massive amount of financial benefit from it and you kind of you know my head's going in nine different directions just saying that story uh, and it, I don't know where you begin and end with what's right or wrong about it. It's very hard to unpick I, it comes out of something we sometimes say uh, which is even greenwash and woke washing you know which is you know 
is a step, actually a step in the right direction because mm -hmm. at least it means that the people who are making decisions are sort of conscious of the issues, it, even if they're responding to them cynically or you know or, or or from a purely commercial standpoint. It is one step on a journey that ends up with people doing the right thing for the right reasons mm. and being successful uh, uh, in business. And, and coming back to DNAD, which I, which I think you know is why you wanted to talk, Ben, is we our DNAD's role again is something Steve accused us of is not saving the world. We're you know we're absolutely about uh, celebrating, stimulating, enabling to a certain extent excellence in commercial creativity. That is DNAD's role. But also, I think increasingly, issues of diversity and inclusion are an important part of that, of stimulating excellence. Uh, and therefore, we campaign for that as well. But, but it's for the same reason. It's not something additional that we've bolted on. It's because more diverse organizations are more creative and you know, create better outcomes. So sometimes that can seem as if we're bandwagon jumping. But actually, it's it's from a sort of fervent belief that actually it's the right the right thing to do from the from the point of view of the business, from you know our ability to serve clients effectively, and I, I think increasingly I've come to see it sounds a bit pompous. So I apologise if it does. DNA's role is kind of helping the industry via the awards and education and new blood and shift and programs like that to sort of do the right things well. So absolutely doing things well is because we're slightly elitist and you know we we reward excellence, but doing the right things well, I think, has become increasingly important. And you have to make judgments about that. So again, coming back to Steve, he would say, You've got no right. And he quoted um uh Jeremy Bullmore at me on this. In fact, I think he quotes him in the book, saying, you know, agencies have got no right to take moral stands or to, you know, political or any other kind of stand. They're that but what happens if taking a stand is actually part of giving a client the right advice? Mm. You know, to me, it's much more complicated than you can't do it. it. Well, sometimes you need to do it, like Nike, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, 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 I think that, that whole thing of, of what position we have as advertising people in terms of our client influence is a really fascinating one as well, because you're kind of going, well, they have their own CSR departments. They, they read the papers same as us. They know what's going on. It's not like they're sitting there going, God, should we drill for oil or should we not drill for oil? Hang on. Our advertising agency says, no, stop the drilling now is, is, is a fanciful at best notion. So I'm kind of interested also in the, yeah. the you know, we're talking from a DNAD or a creative point of view, but the advertising agency as a whole or the advertising industry as a whole um, in, its, in terms of its ability to influence its clients. Because, you know, the, I think a lot of the Extinction Rebellion stuff was about, hey, you've got to tell your clients, you know, we're, we're not going to work on it, whatever it happens to be. I'm kind of going, well, if they're your clients already, like what, what, what's really going on there? And they know what they are. They're not just going to go, hey, the creative director of Blah Blah Agency said we need to stop. Exactly. You can't do, you can't do that. And that... And I think one of the Extinction Rebellion demands was, you know, that, and there's a very nice guy called Jonathan Wise. Have you come across him? I, I haven't, no. Okay, he's he run something called Reset. He's, he's also been around this whole area for a long time and is absolutely a thousand percent sincere about it. But he's very idealistic. And, and you know, he says, well, agencies should refuse to work on anything like automotive or airline accounts where, you know, they're polluting. And, and you go, honestly, Jonathan, you can't, as an industry, we can't just do that because 
A, those advertisers will go and find somewhere, someone else to do their advertising. And B, it's better to stay inside the tent and, and help influence things gradually for the better than to just all the good people just cut themselves off from the people who aren't doing 100% right. And no company, I think that it, Unilever is such an interesting example in that and often cited is, you know, they, when um, Paul Pullman was there, their, their growth plan was called the Plan for Sustainable Living, as I'm sure you know, Ben. Yeah, yeah. But most of their brands had nothing to do with that, you know, but they were gradually making progress. You know, they were developing purpose-driven marketing plans for their brands one by one. And just because they hadn't got it 100% right across all 400 or 350 of their brands from day one was not a good reason not to kind of support them in that endeavor. Uh, and I, I think that's true of most clients, except the ones that are deliberately and, you know, deliberately going about their business in, a, in an unethical fashion. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, absolutely. And yeah. uh, we, we have an ethical bank over here for our, our agency um, called Beneficial State Bank, which is a B Corp as well. Yeah. And um, the person who runs it has this really interesting way of looking at things where she says, you've got to stand in this economy to create the next one. So it's very hard to just, like I said, sell all your stuff and go and live in a cardboard box and be effective yeah. in terms of who you are as an advertising agency. But you go, well, at least I've given my money to whatever it happens to be. That's yeah. not effective. What, what's effective is to actually take the situation we're currently in and try and change it because it's going to take, yeah. you know, like we said, the four years, no one mentions the climate crisis in the presidential debates. Cut to four years later, even though it's still Donald Trump, um, they're mentioning it in, in both debates and yeah. with, a, with a big chunk. And now we're all talking about it and that's fine. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. I, I don't think you, I don't think you can change things just by rejecting where we are now and sort of, you know, wishing for a, some sort of idealized future. It doesn't work like that, you know. And I, I, th I think I also said this in this in the the debate with Steve. It everything is is nuanced, you know. It, I think one of the things he says is, you know, but Black Lives Matter and climate rebellion. You know, there are extremists involved, people who are literally trying to tear down capitalism. And, and you go, well, there might be, but the fact that that's the case doesn't make, you know, the vast bulk of people being against, you know, institutionalized racism in, in the uh, US police forces wrong. It, they're still right about that. And it, it's not wrong for Extinction Rebellion to want the climate emergency to move up the political agenda to the top. It's a very sane response to the situation. There may yeah. well be Marxists in the background, but it doesn't make what, they, what they're asking for the wrong thing to ask for. And it, again, you know, it's, it just comes back to this previous point, Ben, that you know, nothing is black and white. You know, there are just shades of gray and you have to sort of try and pick a way through it. No, absolutely. And I was, I was kind of wondering what Extinction Rebellion seemed to be doing now because you know from parking boats in the middle of oxford circus yeah. they seem to have sort of gone a bit quiet and i was kind of trying to dig into that because their more recent advertising seems to have been uh, a lot more along the lines of the nice softy softly plinky guitar music kind of thing and i was kind of going whatever they did by parking that boat there and they probably pissed a bunch of people off and it's very difficult to it, the, the reason and I'll, I'll go into gigantic fucking solutions in, in a moment, but the, you're never going to, there isn't going to be this one magic bullet that's going to persuade literally everybody to start being climate conscious tomorrow. There are lots and lots of things. So you're going to have things that are you know, off-putting to some people, but massively enrolling to other people, inspiring to some people and re anathema to other people. Yeah. And however they did it in, in terms of, you know, get, getting up people's noses, 
I think they they would believe, and perhaps is the case, they did more good than harm, and therefore, you know, it's it was on it was on the front page for you know days, and therefore, again, the, the window has moved a little bit in terms of that conversation. It has. I, I agree with you. I think they did well. I I agree with them. I think they did do more good than harm. I think a lot of you know people who are certainly not extremists, you know, got involved and certainly got engaged with mm -hmm. with with the subject matter to a degree that they hadn't before. And of course, you know, taxi drivers hated them and, you know, commuters got pissed off and all the rest of it. But I think that the message stuck and has yeah. stuck, you know, Absolutely. yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I sent you a, a link on one of the emails we had to um, an initiative that, that uh, my wife and I are doing called Gigantic Fucking Solutions. Yeah, yeah, I, which is... I couldn't, I couldn't, I got to the website and I, I couldn't get any further on that page. Oh, I, 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 put, I put a password, but well, I'll, I'll make sure you can check it out. I've missed, um, I missed the fact there was a password. I do beg your pardon, yeah. yeah. No, no problem at all. Um, but so we, we went and had dinner uh, maybe a year and a half ago and, and we just suddenly came to this weird realization and said, hang on, if advertising people have got us into this overconsumption mess, <laughs> they can surely get us out of it because you know, um, advertising people are presumably the masters of persuasion and yeah. we know how to do what we need to do. So you've got these incredible thinkers all through the industry and yeah. some of which are not being used enough by the industry. And therefore, they should be able to make that change. So with that as the, the kind of uh, founding concept of it and having no real idea what to do otherwise and no money, we just decided to kind of um, start asking people from Walter Campbell and Paul Silburn to um, scientists, education people as well. So uh, the more we dug into it, the more we kind of found where the pros and cons were. And as I always end up saying, the, the S on the end of solutions is the most important thing here because we, we, it, it's going to take a lot of different kind of ways of coming about it. But yep. Paul came up with an incredible idea that would benefit Airbnb as a business. Walt came up with a completely different perspective on how travel should be talked about. And then um, we spoke to MNC Saatchi in Sydney, which is now uh, creatively run by my old art director, Cam Blackley. And they had this incredible oh, idea. Cam. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, lovely guy. Yeah. And um, they came up with this idea to have the human being declared an endangered species because it, um, we technically fit the criteria for an endangered species right now. Yeah, really. So they came up with that. And, and ever since then, we've been uh, working out gradually how to lobby the US government to change the Endangered Species Act. I think, I think it's the name of the act. But they're, they're giving us advice on how you, ch you can change this level. You can slip an amendment in here, whatever. So we've gone from you yeah. know, this thing of like how we can change it to go, what is a solution? Right, MSC actually come up with this amazing idea. How do we how do we get that going? And then we're starting to kind of work out how to become a lobbyist or something like that. Yeah. And that that's kind of to me the creative thinking. That I'm not saying that the advertising industry, you know, again rip it up and start again. Right, it needs to do, but there's nothing that's stopping any of us as creative people from looking at a solution that might be a completely different way of looking at uh, this problem. It doesn't have to be an advertising campaign. I think is what I'm very slowly getting at. Uh, I completely agree with that. I was laughing by the way when you started because Joe Confino, who I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, who was the Guardian sustainable business editor, we got him to talk. We, we ran a sort of conference over two days when we launched the white pencil. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly what he said. He stood up and said, you fuckers got us into this. Now help us get out, get out of it. That's exactly his opening, this is opening sentence. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but from DNA, the white the white pencil started. What was it? 15, 20 years ago? No, or, it was ten actually. Uh, am, I, am I thinking of a different a transparent pencil or something? <laughs> There's different no, the, oh, the mic, there was a the mic, was it, the mic, even a bit of green. 
So the white the white pencil was um, it was actually Sankey and Rosie Arnold's idea, and it was to mark the 50th anniversary of DNAD. So okay. it was about nine years ago. It, it, if I'm honest, it it was a great initiative. It wasn't ever properly thought through, and then we span it off into Impact and ran that as a sort of counter cyclical. Uh, award in its own right and I, we've now pulled it back into the main award show and I think that's right I, keeping it separate was making a wrong statement about how important this stuff was I think um, so I, I think we've got there it's only taken us nine years but I think we've got to the right place now actually with it but it's an example of our DNA because you're saying that our juries decide and I totally understand that but you, you also do have an initiative element where presumably, whether it's your executive committee or suggestions from your members or whatever, where yeah. you go, we should have a white pencil or a green pencil or, yeah. um, this, this goes into another weird side point where it's really funny that we call things like ethical this or you know, sustainable that, whereas, and th because the norm is unethical. Yeah. So we have to call things ethical because they're in the opposition to what is normally like, we, really it's unethical diet coke. But we don't call it unethical diet coke because that, that would be kind of weird. Yeah, but, right. yeah. but instead, the NAD has to, like everyone else, have an ethical initiative where what should be the central DNAD and everything else is ethical, and being unethical is the weird thing. Absolutely, and 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 as you absolutely say, to normalise the right kind of behaviour, that should be should be the aim. And 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 I, I've written about this a lot when the kind of sustainability agenda and the actual commercial agenda intersect and become the same thing, then you have companies like Patagonia, who, I mean, uh, the founder of, what's his name, Schoenard, uh, Yves Schoenard of Patagonia, says almost exactly what Lord Levyhume said back in 1892, we do, we do well by doing good. What he says is the more good we do, the more money we make. Um, but even that's difficult because Leverhulme, you know, who built Port Sunlight, who I've held up over the last 10 years <laughs> as a sort of paragon of capitalist virtue. It, it turns out was actually uh, buying palm oil from, uh, from slave labor run uh, uh, plantations in the Congo. <laughs> so, you know, so fuck, what can you do? You know, I know it's complicated. It it is everywhere you turn. There's a, there's right. a thing, and we, we've worked for companies in our ethical thing where they have said, "This is what we do." And a month later, we've dug into it a bit further and go, "You don't quite do." And you, this is what you've said to us as your advertising agency. Then mind the public, yeah. and then we dig into that and go, "You don't quite do that, do you?" Really, uh, <laughs> it comes down to it. I know, but I mean, when 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 our time arrives, hopefully not too late, when people like us and our children won't buy from companies that are not doing the right thing in the right way, then, then we will have got to a place where business has to, has to act sustainably and ethically and all the rest of it. And I think, I think that's a big hope for the planet, actually. I think, you know, governments and, you know, supranational organizations have not been very effective at controlling this stuff. And I, no, I, I, mean, think, I think business has to take the lead and we have to, take the lead in advising businesses how to go about it and how to project it and execute it and all the rest of it. Well, I, I think that, 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 that very much bleeds into the say taxation question whereby, you know, the, the so many companies avoid paying any tax at all, or even get a rebate, even though they're, they're you know, producing billions and millions of dollars every year, but they, they barely pay any tax at all because the tax laws 
allow that to happen. Yeah. And the argument that then, then happens for a lot of people is, hey, you should, um, you should change the laws. They're just doing what they can do uh, under the circumstances. Yeah. Well, yeah, but ethically, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go, let's pay zero tax. And you go, oh, well, fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, which actually isn't even a thing. There isn't a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders either. Because as you see with um, Unilever, Unilever, they say, we're going to do things our way. And Tim Cook said it about Apple as well. If you don't like the way we do things, go and buy shares in something else. Yeah. So it's Bob, not always Bob, about making money. So. Yeah. No, sorry. Bob Hoffman, who I read mm. and like a lot, said a really brilliant thing. I don't know if it was his original idea, but he expressed it. He said, if you're not paying taxes where you make your profits, don't even talk to me about anything else, right? No, I'm not absolutely. interested in what charities you support or, you know, what what your you know brand purpose is. If you're not paying tax, you know, fuck off, basically. And yeah. I think that's really good. You know, people, you know, I'm sure we'd agree about that. They absolutely have a have a responsibility to support the infrastructure that in turn supports their mm -hmm. business that generates the profits, you know. Uh, and that includes education and transport and health and all the rest of it. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's, they have it's to almost, it's, it's almost insane that you go, hey, we re rely on the education that educates our staff. We rely on the roads that, that we bring our products in on. We rely on the police to generally protect things as they're going, but we're not gonna pay a penny towards it happening. And it's just another suck of money from the middle class to the people who already have billions and billions. And, and yet, and again, I was reading, um, I was reading one of Steve's conversations on, on, uh, um, on LinkedIn with, I think, Toby Allen from, from, from AMV. Oh, yeah. and he was saying, if you asked your average somewhat woke person, would they buy from a company that didn't pay its tax, treated its workers badly? And I can't remember what the third thing was. Yeah. They'd all go, no, and yet we all buy from Amazon every day. Um, yeah. So, and, and we use Google 50 times a day and, you know, we, all, all the rest of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing on, on the human, human side of it where people aren't willing to trade uh, convenience for things that might be better or, for the world. Or desire. I mean, I'm sitting here at my desk in my study. I can see seven Apple products <laughs> without moving. Yeah, I'm going to move right here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. With that being the case, um, another element of uh, advertising ethics to me, um, and again, this is where I'm, I feel like I'm very forward thinking, way, way too far ahead of my time, problematically so, yeah. is that advertising intrinsically um, is there to sort of, it, or, or it's, it's turned into this over the years, make you feel bad about not having the product. Yeah. You know, your life would be better if you happen to have X, Y, or Z thing that happened to be. And not only that, um, when you sell it, you'll put unrealistic body images on, on advertising things. And um, you'll also uh, put aspirational lifestyles that make people feel bad and, uh, you know, been, been linked very strongly to everything from just not feeling good about yourself to even suicide. Absolutely. That people think, think that they're inadequate. So we can talk about environmental ethics, but what about the ethics of advertising intrinsically causing mental harm to people? I'm calling, you know, you know, desires that you, you know, you can't enact, and you know, as you say, you know, imagery that you aspire to but can't can't attain. Uh, I, uh, it's, it's. So I'm going to use Levi's as an example, right? Or I was just about to. I was just about to say. Okay. Let's, let's, so let's, Nick came uh, in in a, in a laundrette. <laughs> and we and we had a. I'll come back to this. We had a run-in with the BBC about this actually. Uh, me and Nigel Bogle and Hegarty actually. The 
I mean, I think what what that advertising, Nick Kamen and the, the stuff that followed it did, it certainly saved the brand in Europe. That was the first thing it did. Levi's was in real trouble. And coming back to what I was saying about great clients, Bob Rocky, who was the president of Levi's, said, will this work? And we said, yes, it will work. And he said, well, let's make it then. It was like a, when we presented the work, it was like a 20 minute meeting. Anyway, uh, is that wrong to create that kind of desirable imagery? It's certainly lucky because I don't think anyone knew, you know, how effective, how absolutely effective it, it was going to be. Does that imagery, you know, which sort of conjured up a sort of America that never really existed, but people happened to want to buy into at that time, uh, does that give them an additional pleasure alongside simply owning a pair of, you know, five pocket blue jeans, you know, Western jeans? I kind of think it does. I'm not sure that that does any harm, but but I think a lot of, I'm going to sound sexist here, a lot of particularly advertising to women and young women, you know, which conjures up unrealistic imagery that, 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 that is genuinely unattainable because no one looks like that. I'm sure that does damage. So we got a call about five years into 501s. We got a call from a producer at the BBC. Funnily enough, actually, someone I'd been at university with, but that's another part of the story. Saying, oh, we're doing a, you know, a, a program about this, about exactly what we're talking about. And we need advertising people to come on. And, uh, and we went, well, we're slightly wary about that. And they said, no, it really does need the advertising industry to put its side of this argument because it's exactly. Anyway, uh, I, think, I think I certainly gave an interview and I think John did too. And it turned out the program was about uh, suicide and young males and they hadn't told us the subject matter. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and actually it was okay as it happened because I don't, we didn't manage not to say anything too stupid. But, but it was, you know, it, it really made me think about what you've just asked, Ben, which is, you know, how culpable are we? And the, 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 the conventional excuse is the imagery you create and the, desirable, the, the desirability you create around a product, which is actually what a brand is, is part of what people buy and part of what they enjoy when they consume it for the most part. I don't really know if I believe that, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I'm not sure there's a good answer to all this because... Uh, it, it, you know, you could you could take it even further and go: Is it in human nature to want to progress, improve, competition, things like that? Are they are they intrinsically in it? Is it a bug rather than a feature yeah. that we actually kind of want to consume these things, even though they'll kill us uh, one way or another, or they'll kill some of us? And you can't really, you know, putting Nick Kamen in the laundrette. Uh, you don't fast forward to a suicide five years later. Joining the dots between those two things is a virtually impossible thing to do. And going well, if you can't do that. What about the, the paintings of what Michelangelo's David? Do we have to rip that down as well? And, and how do we, where do you draw the line? Exactly. And, you know, th there is no question that, you know, part of the joy of owning a, I don't know, take an Aston Martin is that, you know, Sean Connery drove one in, you know, Darwin's of Forever. I mean, you know, brand imagery is, 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 is that is a huge, I mean, it's intrinsic. That's what we do. We create images mm -hmm. around products that turn into brands and, and, Without that, you're just—it's just down to a better mousetrap, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You know, it's, uh, and and I think that kind of advertising is also relevant. You know, if you've got a great product, the first obligation of the advertising is to get out of the way, isn't it? So you know, but a lot of products are parity, and and they need the you know the advantages that advertising can give them. I've never really, I, I, if I'm honest with myself, I've never really sat down and examined how I feel about it because I've spent forty years of my life doing it. And uh, I might come to a slightly awkward conclusion. About that. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm the same. And, and you know, in, in the time that I was, um, you know, working on and creating both Gigantic Fucking Solutions and our ethical advertising agency, uh, Invincible Unicorn, and going yeah. through all these things and, and totally believing them in 100%. For financial reasons, I was also freelancing for certain companies that I'm definitely not going to bring up right now because well, <laughs> you need a freelance for them again. Um, but it makes the whole thing like, what are my actual principles? What, you know, if I'm going this far to, to create these initiatives and even I don't actually live that lifestyle and believe it, what am I expecting or thinking that other people are going to do? And it kind of gives the whole world a total free pass on these yeah. things. I think one of the get out of jail cards is, you know, gambling is a problem but not for the vast majority of people that do it. Drinking yeah. is a problem, but not for the vast majority of people that do it. Smoking is a problem for the vast majority of people that do it, and therefore was, it was right that smoking was banned. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, there's, a, there's a figure floating around in the back of my head, which is it's somewhere between one and 3% of people in, in these kinds of categories where, where you know, most people participate, drink, whatever, you know, bet, without coming to any harm, but there are some people who are vulnerable and they, they you know, should, should, should you, you know, stop the vast majority of the population enjoying something that they, you know, gives them pleasure and, you know, is a, a pastime or an outlet of some sort because of that one to three percent of people who, who inevitably will abuse it and, and damage themselves. And I, I think there is a greater good argument in there somewhere, probably. Yeah. And I think you could then talk, you, you could then take this one step further into Mention the word rationing, for instance. Yeah. So if we imposed rationing, you know, because of the meat industry and whatever and the harm it's doing to it, you know, people would be up in arms about the, the compromise to their freedom. Yeah. Whereas in World War II, it was seen as a totally, you know, you could, you could really join the dots very easily between yeah. us needing to do rationing and the war effort and things like that. So, yeah. But, but, but that was, a, that was a, a, a question of communication. We're very much... My wife and I very much in the fact that this is a, it's a communication issue rather than anything else. The facts are out there. We all know the behavior, but we're not able to communicate to people uh, persuasively enough to get them to change their behavior, whether it's about the fact their insurance um, is going to change. The insurance market's going to be dead at some point soon because you can't say insure homes against wildfires in California, which means you can't get mortgages on them, which means the whole housing market collapses. And then the same with flooding in England, that's going to be a thing in the, in the near future. How are we going to address all those things? And if we're not able to communicate those things now, that's kind of on us as the communication people. The, the, the facts and the, the situation is, is plain. There isn't really an argument to be had unless we want to just kind of weasel our way out of it to some degree. But the, the, the communication thing, which takes us back to advertising and DNAD, is, uh, is what it all really comes down to. And we're supposed to be the experts at that, but no, no one in advertising has taken on the brief of communicating the climate crisis. Nobody. They, they haven't. No, some people have tried. Jo Jonathan Wise, who I mentioned earlier, has, has tried to pick it up. I mean, part, part of the problem is the answer to it is not, is not advertising. It's, you know, it's the, some of the things that you've mentioned, which I, I will now go, go away and look at. It's people, it is communication in the broader sense, or communication is a big part of it. But I think a lot of people think we'll just do an ad and they mm. stick it out there and nothing happens. And it's really not, surpri not surprising that nothing happens. I, um, I, you, do, you really should talk to Naresh, but I, I, I'm just trying okay, to think. Yeah. So Naresh, is, we're going to put on a series of presence lectures because doing it virtually enables it to, in a sense. And 
uh, a lot of them are going to be about precisely these kinds of issues. Uh, um, and uh, and Naresh is so articulate and has thought so much about this stuff that I feel slightly inadequate having these conversations and with you as well, because you know, you and your wife have obviously thought deeply about this and you've actually done something about it. Well, we've done something about it, but, yeah. and I, I, I feel we should join forces in, in some way. Um, and I will give that some thought and, and see how we might be able to facilitate that. I, I'm very keen for DNAD to keep pushing this agenda forward. Uh, you know, despite what people like Steve may feel and think, and that you know there are, there are people like like him in the business who who you know are, who think this is all lefty nonsense, um, but I don't really care about that anymore. <laughs> so you know I, I I feel we should we should become. I mean, there is a coalition of the willing here, isn't there? Increasingly, there are a lot of people who want. Who I think want. most of us are in it, whether whether deeply or otherwise. We're all willing. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think even Steve would say that. And and if you look at. I'm a, I don't know if Steve has kids or grandkids or whatever it happens to be, but I think we're all looking at that and going, hey, we might be able to work out the next 30, 40 years and then, you know, you pop your clogs and that's the end of that. But yeah. we've got kids. Now I look at my 14-year-old and my 11-year-old and go, if you guys are going to try and work out the next 70, 80 years in what's going to be a res scarce resource, there's going to be another pandemic in the next five years. That's Judging by the schedule that's happened so far in this century, there's been about one every five years. Yeah. So we're getting, the news about the vaccine today is great, but... The climate crisis is brought on and the explosion of population brought on COVID-19 because of the movement of apex predators out of the, the place where they were going to kill medium level predators, allowing them to mix together more. There yeah. we have COVID-19 this is going to happen more and more. So everything that's happening in the world that's a problem needs to be you know, linked back to our own behavior because that's what actually causes those things. And the fact that you know, our population has, you know, has you know, increased exponentially you know, over the last whatever it is, Hundred years. I mean, David Attenborough. My, my, my one of my daughters is is doing some really interesting stuff. Actually, making all these issues kind of palatable to teenagers, effectively. And they they're just about to launch a website called um, called uh, Itza. Uh, and and they've they've got films from from David Attenborough and so on, and from all over the place. And you know his his thing when it boils down to it, he he actually and it's a very difficult area to get into because it it sort of feels like you're denying rights and even life to, you know, parts of our population. Is It is it is population in the end. You know, mm -hmm. there are too many of us on the planet and there's not enough resources to feed and clothe them, you know, cure, cure our ills. And that, that is, <laughs> that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. Well, we, we, we're getting to the, the sort of um, time, we've done an hour or so. And the oh. other thing I was going to mention to you before we before we skip off is um so one of the other things that is one of our gigantic fucking solutions is my, my wife has a thing called green the bid where there's a, a few of them together has created this so it's getting commercial production to be environmentally responsible and yeah. sustainable and yeah. um I've heard, I've heard of that yes I've well you may well have done because yeah. we're, we're now it's it, we're talking to people all, all over the world there was a launch yeah. of it uh, a couple of weeks ago and it'd be great if dnad um was a supporter of it um in terms of you know, uh, endorsing it and, and uh, mentioning it and, and, and if there are panels or whatever that you have conversations about, having it be brought up. So I could connect you with her and, and she could explain more in some that would way. That would be great. I, I would love, love, we'd love to get behind that. Absolutely. I have heard, um, what, what is your wife's name, Ben? Uh, Gabby K. G-A-B-I. Okay. 
but there's there's about four or five of them. Who yeah, yeah. I've, I, I, someone did come in and talk to us about it actually, and oh, then fantastic. and then sort of nothing happened. And I don't know whether that was their fault or our fault. I suspect it was just pre-COVID, and it all it fell between the cracks actually. So. Well, there are a few initiatives along these. There's been a there's one called Alfred, which is BAFTA's kind of oh, yeah. or maybe Albert uh, BAFTA's green thing, and there's there was another initiative from uh, happening more in more in England. But yeah. um, this is something that you know they're looking to spread, and Ford have signed up for it. Lots of companies want to sign up for this, and I think it's it's great because she does it every day. I get an update every day about a giant company that wants to make sure this corner of what they do is done responsibly, and I think yeah. like, well, okay like you're saying a coalition of the willing the coalition of the willing is massive it's just getting everyone to be engaged in a way that they can be effective organizing it exactly there are some interesting initiatives as well which i'm sure you're aware of uh, around diversity and inclusion in, in film production as well which both i think the oscars and bafta are both have both established kind of eligibility criteria mm. around around how, you know, how diverse crews and casts are, yeah. are which i think and, then, and again, we're looking at that slightly kind of tremulously, I, I guess is the word. I mean, apart from the difficulty of policing it, you know, do, would you start awarding or, or indeed withholding pencils on the basis of the diversity of their cast and crew? I mean, it, it gets... Well... It gets, it gets interesting, shall we say. Imagine it? if you did. I mean, it, it, just give it a go and see what happens would, would be one thing, or let's not do it. Or, and I, I totally appreciate in your position, it's not as easy as that. No problem. I was going to get into something that was going to take an hour anyway, so we should probably just wrap it up, actually, because um, my, my WordPress doesn't let me do much more than an hour when I put it on a podcast. So okay. we, we can have another conversation at some point. It would be great to, to I, keep it. I'd love to. I'd love to. Ben. I'm just going to remind you, you once got me into terrible trouble with your blog. This is about 10 years ago. <laughs> Completely inadvertently. I, I, and I'm just trying to recall the detail. I think I wrote a review of a not very good book about managing creative people and it, for management today or something and in it I said something really stupid about you know some creative people are borderline psychopaths or something, something really stupid like that and I, I think you pulled me up on it we hadn't met obviously and, and there was a sort of whatever the equivalent of a twitter pile on <laughs> so anyway that was yeah I haven't know like again uh, the consequences of my words and actions, I have no, like, they go in all sorts of places. And I apologize to anyone listening to this who has had a Twitter pile on. Or no, no, exactly. No, no, I wasn't feeling resentful at, at all. And you were right about Alan, that Alan Parker article, by the way. That, do you remember uh, that? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, it was it was weird because it I was, was like, it was this guy bit. needs. Yeah, yeah, it was that, and then um, we can all talk about copy and international jurors. These yeah, these I, are all hour long conversations, yeah. if not three hour long conversations. I do listen, by the way. We we listen, so hey. we do. I would one hundred percent say it's great that that DNAD is very responsive to people getting up in arms about um, them not printing an annual or something like that, which I'm like, I, I don't know, should, should anyone be printing these things? These, my, my one small suggestion that is probably gonna get absolutely nowhere is you should go down the, um, the path of that Visionaire book that was, they used to get one designed every month by an incredible designer. And it yeah. used to cost about four or 500 pounds depending on who did it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, if you went in the other direction and said, yes, here's our annual, but it's gonna be a thousand pounds to anyone who actually wants yeah. it. Honestly, Ben, we're, we're thinking about that stuff. We're, I have to say, I, I have the benefit of having seen the digital annual and it's fantastic. And it's going well, to be, I love the archive. The archive is, is a godsend yeah, to me. It's going to be free to everyone. And the, the content is deep and rich. And, it, it, you know, it's the annual, if I'm, you know, goes to about 1,500 people, most of whom live in London. You know, it's not widely distributed. <laughs> but never say never, you know. Never we, say never. Yeah. Okay, well, um, have a great evening. And um, I'll, I'll be in touch on email about Green the Bid and things like that. And, yeah, let's keep in touch. Absolutely, Ben. I really enjoyed enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, and if you could send me the file, that would be wonderful. I will. I will. When I figure out how to do it, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Or we can just repeat the whole conversation. Exactly. Okay. All right. Cheers, Have a good day. You too. Cheers. Bye.